Tonight is the first Sunday night of the month, and as such, for the past several months, we have been taking this night to address questions that have been asked and to try to be able to give a biblical answer for them, to try to do as what Brother Marty just read, to give the sense from Scriptures. I will tell you, as I prepare for these, I've become very humbled realizing that no one knows it all. And I will tell you, the more I learn, the more my knowledge grows, the more I recognize how much I do not know and uh, recognize that there are some questions that are going to be taxing and they're going to be difficult to answer. But I recognize that answers can be found. And in fact, in the Bible, questions are good because most of the time when people ask a question, They're seeking an answer. They want to know what God would have us to do and how he would have us to live. That requires us, all of us, to be prepared to answer at least some of the basic questions. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. The American Standard King James says, To give an answer. To everyone who asks the reason of you with uh, hope that is in you, with meekness and fear. So we ought to be the kind of people who welcome questions and ought to be the kind of people who are trying to provide answers. And I've told you over the past few months that there are three basic types of questions. There are those that are textual, that come from the text of Scripture. We're going to have one of those tonight as we address specifically that. There's some that are topical. They address particular ideas in mind. Maybe, for instance, as we did last month, we talked about what is the 80-70 doctrine. And then there are some that are practical. That is, they deal with how do you take God's Word and apply it in a specific situation. And I believe those are the kind of questions, at least in my mind, that are helpful for me is because it means you look for answers of how to live out what God wants you to do in His Word. And we're going to have at least one of those tonight. The first question was one that is going to require some time to answer. The question was, did Damascus ever cease from being a city any time in history? I could say yes, but that would be cheating. Uh, The text that was referred to me was Isaiah 17 and verse 1. The burden against Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. Now, introducing the question with Isaiah 17 and verse 1 is going to require me giving a little bit of background And if you've got your Bibles handy, you may want to make a note or two in them uh, to try to be able to give you a little bit of background behind this. During the time of Isaiah, Israel, and by that I mean the northern kingdom as opposed to Judah, the southern kingdom, and Syria, that is also referred to as Aram, were allies against Judah. Now think about the northern kingdom, their brethren, along with the Syrians, of which the capital is Damascus, were allies trying to threaten. And I want you to go back with me to Isaiah chapter 7, and let's look at the first few verses, because I think this really opens up our understanding. 
And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramilah, the king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. Now, if you read those names, they can confuse you, but if you leave the names out, you understand the two nations are coming together. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and now meet Ahaz, you and Sherjeshub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the way of the highway to the fuller's field. And again, you're being given directions, you're being given people's names, but the idea is, is that the people are worried. They're upset because Damascus was a great power. The Syrians were, the northern kingdom. And here's poor little Judah with Ahaz the king, and he doesn't know how to handle this. He said, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramallah because of Syria, Ephraim and the son of Ramallah have plotted against you saying, let us go up against Judah, trouble it, and let's make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set up a king over them, the son of Tabal. Now their minds were, let's go down there, let's conquer Judah, Let's set up our own puppet king. And he says in verse 7, it'll not stand, it'll not come to pass. And he says, it's going to be broken. Syria's not going to stand. God is trying to tell Judah, tell Ahaz, that what's going to happen, these two nations that are threatening you, don't worry about them. They're like smoking firebrands. They're going to go out. God even used Isaiah's son to predict the fall of Syria and Damascus. I like it because I like the name of Isaiah's son. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. The Lord said to me, take a large scroll, write on it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalahashbaz. That's his oldest son's name. Now, if you want to imagine trying to tell that kid to spell his name the first day in class uh, that's a long name his name means swift to the spoil or swift to the booty in other words somebody's going to prey upon them quickly and I will take for myself a faithful witness to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jerobiah and then I went to the prophetess she conceived and bore a son the Lord said to me call his name Maher Shalahashbaz. You see, the idea is, is that the latter part, he says, Before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father, my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Okay, that introduces another idea. And that is, don't worry, Assyria will destroy Damascus. So when I'm reading Isaiah 17 and verse 1, I've got to realize that this is has a lot of background explaining, yes, God's going to bring an end to this city because they've tried to threaten his people, Judah. Well, how did this all come to pass? 
Well, what happened was Ahaz hired the Assyrians to come and to frustrate the people of Syria, Damascus, and the northern kingdom. In 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 7 through 9, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Beleser, king of Assyria, and said, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Assyria and from the hand of the king of Israel, who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and the gold found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him. But the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Kerr and killed Rezin. Okay, that's the way God fulfilled it. Ahaz sent the money, the Assyrians delivered them. And uh, that was the reason why it was destroyed. While Damascus would be destroyed, there would be a small remnant left. That's important because of the question that was asked. And that is, would there be people who would come back? Would there be people who would be rebuilding? And if you look at verse 3, the fortress will cease from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria. So he's talking about some that will survive. What made Damascus such a wonderful place that people would want to build and then rebuild and then rebuild? It's because we don't really see the city as it is. But the Avana and the Farpar rivers flowing through it made it an oasis on the edge of the desert. And because it was an oasis, that's where people want to build so they can be able to have crops to grow and be able to have water to drink. In 2 Kings chapter 5 and verse 12, you'll remember that Naaman talked about the waters that were in Damascus being better than those in Israel. The city was many times completely destroyed only to be rebuilt later. It was rebuilt in the Seleucid period. That's those who were following Alexander the Great. It was rebuilt during the Roman period. It was rebuilt during the Arab period. And I'd suggest to you it will be rebuilt again. And you say, what do you mean be rebuilt again? I thought it might be worthy to show you a few photographs. That's a picture of Damascus this year. There's another picture of Damascus this year. There's another picture of Damascus this year. And there's a picture of the bombed out buildings. And there's a picture, and that is actually blood in the street from people whose bodies had just been picked up. Has Damascus been destroyed? Absolutely. And it's been destroyed again. And if the Lord allows this world to continue, I imagine Damascus will be rebuilt and it'll probably be destroyed again. But the question that was asked, was it destroyed completely? And the answer is yes. Okay, let's move to the second question. This is one of the practical questions. How do you go about helping a Sunday Christian? And then in parentheses, that is a person who acts like a Christian on Sunday but worldly Monday through Saturday? Well, that's a good question. That's a thoughtful question. And I'll point out to you, there is a biblical term for the Sunday-only Christian. Hypocrite. That's the, that's the term the Bible uses. 
Let me explain to you. When you go to the New Testament and you start reading about those people in Jesus' day who had an outward show of religion when they gathered together, but they didn't live it all the time, the Lord called them hypocrites over and over again. Let me show you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, Therefore, when you do your charitable deed, do not sound the trumpet as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and the streets, for they that they may have the glory of men. They're out there trying to attract the attention of people, saying, look how righteous I am. Or verse 5 of that same chapter. And when you pray, you shall not pray like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Verse 16, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have received their reward. When you get to Matthew 23, the Lord then upbraids them. He comes after them and their hypocrisy, and he calls them that. He says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and make a pretense Make long prayers. Therefore you shall receive the greater condemnation. The same men who would lead the long prayers, as we referred to back in Matthew 6, he said what they do, they go out and they devour widows' houses. That's what they would do through the week. They were a Sabbath-only Jew. Jesus goes on to describe them in verses 25 through 28. He said, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside full are extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and the dish, that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed uh, outwardly appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. Even so... Also, outwardly, you appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The Sunday Christian is the person who shows up. They sing out. They participate. They may give generously, but their lives through the week do not reflect that. And I will tell you, the Lord said in Matthew 5, verse 20, that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Their heart was not with God. In Matthew chapter 7, 15, verses 7 and 8, he said, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I will tell you that hypocrisy is infectious. That is, if you start seeing someone else acting a hypocrite over here and someone else starts acting a hypocrite over here, pretty soon you'll feel like, well, I can do that too. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 1, Jesus said to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You know the reason why he called it leaven? is because it has that yeast-like influence on other people. You can see it illustrated in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 13 when Barnabas even gets carried away with the hypocrisy of Peter. It's infectious. 
And so you have to make sure that you don't allow that to happen. But you know, as I was pondering this question that was asked, how do you help a Sunday Christian, or I would say a Sunday-only Christian? The question is, why are they that way? Why do they choose to be righteous only on Sunday but not through the week? Well, one of the answers is they want to be friends with the world. They want to have a connection to the Lord, but they don't want to turn loose of their connections with the world and the worldly people and the way things that are done in the world. In James, in chapter 4, verse 4, it says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world has made himself an enemy of God. You can't hold on to God and hold on to the world at the same time. You can't straddle the fence, so to speak. A second reason why many want to do that is because they've decided they want to enjoy the pleasures of sin. In Hebrews 11, verse 25, it talks about Moses, that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin or the pleasures of sin for a season. There's some people who've decided, well, I want to be religious, but I also want to enjoy the the sinful pathway and the things that the sinful people do. What they have done is deceive themselves into thinking that God does not see what they are doing. In Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 12, Then he, that is God, said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Notice, they're going in dark. They're going in secret. They've got a little room in their house. What do they do in that little room? They've got idols in there. These are the leaders of the people. These are the elders of the land that are doing that. And their idea is, he doesn't see. I'm doing this in secret. I'm doing this in dark. Isaiah 29, verse 15. Woe to those who seek deep to hide their counsel far from the Lord. And their works are in the dark. They say, who sees us? Who knows us? The people who are the Sunday-only Christians and have this idea that I can live like the world, they believe that God doesn't see it because He's not at the church building. Oh, how mistaken they are. But the question to ask, how do you help them? What are some techniques to help them? I don't know that I have the answer to this. I'm going to offer some suggestions I've thought about it a lot. I wish I had just the perfect way to address it. I know that many times when you confront people with their sinfulness, they will generally react very negatively. Here's a suggestion or two. Number one, let them know that others know of their lifestyle. You know it. You know what they're doing through the week. But my suggestion is be careful about the way you approach it. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, notice any trespass, doesn't matter what it is, you who are spiritual, restore such a one, now listen carefully, in a spirit of gentleness. 
considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Make sure you handle it in a gentle way in the sense that what you're trying to do is you're not trying to say, aha, I got you. What you're trying to do is to turn that person from doing things that are wrong to doing what is right. The second thing that I would suggest is to try to remind them that God sees all. Just like those illustrations from Ezekiel chapter 8 and from Isaiah 29, here he says God sees all. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13, there's no creature hidden from his sight. And all things are naked and open to whom, or to him, to whom we must give an account. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Does God see when a man lies to uh, a person in business so he can take advantage of him? Does God see when a man will not pay his debts or when a man will not? Do- Absolutely, He does. He knows what kind of life we live. A third thing that I would suggest is that people recognize that they reap what they sow. Every one of us are going to reap what we sow. And in Galatians chapter 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows that, he will also reap. For he that sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. He that sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. If you sow worldly things, you're going to reap a worldly kind of corruption. And you know when Jesus was dealing with those same hypocrites in Matthew chapter 7, He reminded them, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven... It's not as if I can just go up to God and say, God, I was good on Sunday. And he'd say, well, what about the other six days of the week? As if somehow God is not going to take that into account. Question number three. This was asked by one of our younger people. And I like it when young people ask questions. And the question was, what does the word amen mean? That may sound to be just really too simple of a question. But I found out many people believe that it's the equivalent of the English, the end. The only time we tend to say the word amen is at the end of a prayer. And uh, some of them have the idea that maybe that means when you finish a prayer after you say it in Jesus' name, when you say amen, that means I'm signing off, I'm, I'm done. That's not what the word means. The word is used in the original language 129 times. And I will tell you the Greek word is amen. That's the word. And it means a strong affirmation of what has been stated, or I may add, what shall be stated doesn't always have to come at the end. It can come at the beginning. For instance, just two of those 129 instances. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. It means, yes, that's true. That's right. We want that to happen. 
When you say amen at the end of a prayer, what you're saying is, that's right, I agree with that, I want that to happen, and it's a strong affirmation. What you may not realize, if you're reading the New King James, the most common translation of the word amen is the word assuredly. If you're reading the King James, it's translated verily. For instance, there are 25 verses in the King James that say verily, verily. Literally, the Greek words are amen, amen. And that usually occurs at the beginning of the sentence. And what it is saying is when you double it, and it's a strong affirmation, that's even doubling a strong affirmation. Amen, amen. And so the New King James often translates it most assuredly that this is something that is worthy of our acceptance. It's worthy of our following. Now, questions are asked frequently in the Bible. Sometimes they're asked honestly. Sometimes people really want to know the answer. But I will tell you, sometimes in the Bible they were not asked honestly. They were trying to trap our Lord. We must make sure that we ask the right question. And we must be ready to act on the answer. And that means that you and I need to be asking the question like was asked in Acts chapter 2. Men and brethren, what must we do to be saved? Or like the eunuch, see here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? Or you get to Acts 16 and you have the question, what must I do to be saved? See, those are significant questions. But when you get the answer, you need to be willing to act upon it. I want to end with a section from Matthew 19, verses 16 through 22. Now behold, one came to him and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, you should not murder, you should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you should have, love your neighbors yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. But the young man, when he heard this saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You know, sometimes when questions are asked, people want a particular answer. And sometimes as you press and say, what is it that I need to be doing? The Lord's first answer was absolutely scripture, absolutely correct. But this young man kept pressing the matter. I want to know what I need to do. What is lacking in my life? And that's when you really start saying, okay, what is it that, that I'm really needing to do? I don't know in each and every one of your lives 
Some of you may need to obey the gospel tonight. That may need to be what you need to come forward and confess your faith and be baptized. Don't wait on that. If you know you need to do it, act. It may be that you are a Christian. You know you've been harboring sin in your life. You may have been that Sunday-only Christian. You may look at your life and say, I know this past week I've done things that I shouldn't have done as a Christian in my business or in my school. Things that brought shame on the Lord. You know, the Bible teaches us to repent and to pray. Acts 8, that's what Simon was told. Repent and pray that the thought of his heart may be forgiven him. If you need to respond to the Lord, we encourage you to come. While together we stand and sing.